Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2 today. If you have your Bibles or your device, you can meet me there in Matthew chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you, and it is page 966 in that Bible, so you can meet me there. As we've been going through the Christmas season, we have been uh, in a little mini-series that we've called Four Witnesses. We're talking about uh, four different people or groups of people who were just kind of minding their own business when all of a sudden Jesus shows up in their lives in the Christmas story. And so we've been taking a look at Mary and Joseph over the last couple of weeks. We will continue with this today. Uh, America's just gone through an election. You guys might not have known that because it was really quiet and under the radar, but uh, there was a a world-changing election going on, and uh, and an unusual one a little bit, uh, in that with these two candidates, Trump and Clinton, uh, they were actually the least liked candidates in the history of elections. They just, both sides were so hated, and a lot of people, as they were voting, it wasn't so much about which candidate do you like as much as it was about which candidate do you hate less. And that was what motivated a lot of people. Trump won the election, of course, and uh, it is always an amazing thing to me, and Canada has been blessed with this as well, uh, that in the couple of hundred years that these things have been going on uh, for us and a few hundred years for the states, that there is what they call the peaceful transfer of power, that these elections happen uh, and there aren't, you know, armed uprisings, there aren't violent rebellions, there aren't, uh, there'll be protests maybe, but there aren't, you know, terrible things happening in the streets and there is just this uh, this understanding that the power will shift and, and whatever happens will happen. Now that doesn't mean uh, that there's not uncertainty and there is not confusion and there is not concern and, and whoever won this election, there was going to be that and now now uh, we're sort of in the in-between stage of we are waiting to see uh, what's going to happen with President Trump as he comes into power because he's never done this before. Uh, and so there is some uncertainty and, and already there is a little bit of maybe concern about uh, how international relations are going to go and how these things are going to work themselves out. Uh, and so whenever there is a transfer of power, uh, there is a little bit of uncertainty. That's true when Obama came in. That was true when George W. Bush came in. You just don't know exactly what's going to happen next. And so uh, we are praying for the states, as we always should, uh, and we are just going to have to wait and see how this all pans out. Uh, And again, that would have been the case no matter who was there. But we're going to look at a man uh, in the Bible named Herod today. We're going to take a look at Herod's story, King Herod. Uh, And King Herod was the ruler of the kingdom of Israel at the time that the Christmas story was happening. And he wasn't really in charge because Rome was in charge. The Roman Empire had taken over the world. And so uh, Rome was really ruling and he was a bit of a puppet ruler. But uh, he had this title of King of the Jews. And he was in place to uh, sort of nominally rule over Israel and over the Jewish people. And we're going to see what his kingdom was like and what it was uh, like when all of a sudden Jesus showed showed up uh, in that kingdom and the effect that that was going to have. Because Herod had a kingdom uh, that was coming under threat all of a sudden because of Jesus showing up. And I have a kingdom in my life, and you have a kingdom in your life. My kingdom is the kingdom of Chris Walker. And in the kingdom of Chris Walker, which is my life, I am the dictator. I get to do whatever I want. 
Uh, I am the ruler over my own little kingdom. And the choices that I make and the things that I decide to do and what I put my time to and where I put my money to. And as ruler of this kingdom, uh, I sometimes choose to give up that rulership entirely if it means, uh, say, compromising with my wife or sacrificing for my kids. But I have a life and I'm in charge of it. I have a kingdom that I rule over. Uh, and we're going to look at that as well as we look at what happens when Herod's kingdom uh, is under threat from Jesus all of a sudden. So let's look at our text this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read a fair chunk today. We're not going to dig into all of it, but I want you to hear the story. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he decided he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. So we're not going to dig into all of that today. Uh, but that is almost all we know about kind of the early years of Jesus. His birth and uh, what happened and how did he wind up from Bethlehem back in Nazareth and how did that all come about. So there is all that story in there. And uh, it's not an easy story. It is a tough story. There is violence. There is brutal violence in the passage. Uh, and that is, is just part of uh, what we need to kind of wrap our heads around when it comes to Christmas. And I mean, it seems a little silly sometimes when you hear Christians go off on the war on Christmas uh, which usually means that, you know, the secular world is not acknowledging Jesus enough for us. Um, here's a passage. There's an actual literal war on Christmas when Jesus is born. 
uh, and that is serious. And there is that kind of thing going on around the world right now for our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are facing persecution and violence. And so um, I understand wanting to make sure that we keep the Christ in Christmas, but that's our job as the church. That's not Walmart's job. That's our job to do that. Uh, and let's keep some perspective on that as well. So we're going to focus on Herod. We'll talk about the Magi a little bit today. Herod is known as Herod the Great. There's actually four King Herods in Scripture. It can, it can get confusing in the Gospels uh, because there are more than one, and they're all from the same family. But this was the start of the dynasty, Herod the Great. Uh, he had a son, Herod Archelaus, who shows up at the end of the passage, who takes over when Herod the Great dies. There's another Herod who would show up, Herod Antipas, and he's the Herod at the end of the Gospels in the Passion story uh, when Pilate and King Herod are fighting about what to do with Jesus and whether he should be killed or not. That's Herod Antipas. He was a son of Herod the great. And then there's also Herod Agrippa who shows up in the book of Acts and just everyone's called Herod just to make it nice and easy for us all to understand. So there are multiple Herods. This is Herod the Great. Herod the Great had the title King of the Jews. That's what he was called. And that was a title that was given to him by Rome. The interesting thing about Herod is he was not actually Jewish. He was not actually a descendant of the Jewish race. He was, uh, it had been split off along the way, so they had a few common ancestors. But Herod was not considered Jewish. And when Rome was trying to take over the world, and when Rome was trying to conquer all these places, Herod decided that he would partner with Rome. And so he actually partnered with the Roman Empire to take over over Israel and to help bring down Jerusalem. And so because he had served Rome in that way, once Rome had finally taken over Israel, they decided that they owed him a favor, and so they made him in charge, and they gave him the title King of the Jews. Again, he wasn't really in charge because Rome was in charge, but they needed a Jewish person or equivalent of who could kind of be the local leader and could sort of be a religious leader and, you know, very important to Israel that they had a king who was sitting on David's throne, and so they chose Herod to do that. That. And he was not particularly liked by the people. First of all, he wasn't really Jewish. He wasn't faithful to the Jewish law. Uh, he had never followed after the Lord in particular. He had partnered with Rome to destroy Jerusalem. So there were a lot of reasons not to like him. And yet he had been put in place by Rome. And so he was sitting in this king's seat. But his rule was very illegitimate in a lot of people's eyes. He was not, uh, had not won over the hearts of the people. And so Herod the Great is ruling. And he's given the name Herod the Great not because he was necessarily a great guy or had great character. Uh, but he built great things. He was a, an architect and he loved building things. And so he built huge projects. He expanded the temple. He expanded all the palaces. He built huge fortresses, the Masada fortress, uh, which you may have heard of in Israel, he built. And so he built these huge things, and Israel's prestige was raised through his rule in that sense. And so there is this man there who's not really qualified to be there, and he's not really supposed to be there in a lot of people's eyes, um, but he has this wealth, and he has this fame. And with all of that, there is this incredible paranoia uh, that borders on, he was probably actually crazy a little bit. And he was a brutally violent man to the point where he had his own wife executed because he was worried that she was plotting against him. He had three of his sons executed. 
because they were young and they were handsome and they were popular and he saw them as a potential threat. Anytime there was any threat to his rule whatsoever, he would just crush it with overwhelming violence. And so this is all important backstory to know as we look at the story that we've read in our text today. This is the man who has the title of King of the Jews. So he's minding his own business and all of a sudden these magi show up. And the Magi, we don't know exactly who they were or exactly where they come from. The old song of they came from the Orient is a nice song. We don't know exactly where. It just says Magi from the East. And Magi gets translated different ways. It's sometimes translated as magicians. It's sometimes translated as wise men. It's sometimes translated as astrologers. Uh, there's lots of different ways that it looks. But uh, where a lot of scholars have landed is this is probably the same group. Uh, if you remember back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, where Daniel goes to Babylon, uh, and in the king's courts, there were what they called wise men. They were philosophers and astrologers. Uh, there was some magic mixed in there. So a lot of people think that these magi were actually descendants from that. And so they have seen something in the stars. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, verse 1 and 2 of our text today. And so they come and they are looking for Jesus. And whatever happened in the sky, uh, there are certain things that are actually recorded that were going on in the heavens at that point. Uh, just planets coming to alignment in a certain way that might have made an especially bright star. There was a comet that passed by the earth around that time that might have been what they were talking about. But there was something in the heavens that they saw. Uh, and it's a cool story because these are astrologers. And as Christ followers, we would say, we don't look to the stars to tell us the future. We don't look to the stars for that kind of thing. Thing. But it just goes to show that God really can use anything to draw people to himself. And so they come in response to what their sort of religion and philosophy of the time said, which is the stars tell us stuff. And they respond and they come. And they are looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. And that's a huge statement right there in itself. Because most people aren't born as kings, right? When Queen Elizabeth is ruling on the throne, she has a son named Charles. Charles isn't born as the king. He is the future king. He's a prince. So you're not typically born into kingship. It's typically you're born as a prince or a princess, and over time you might grow to the place that you are going to uh, the, ultimately be the king or the queen. But here they're making the statement right off the bat that this baby is king right now. This baby is king of the Jews now. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And that's a threat right off the bat for Herod. Because king of the Jews is his title. Someone is coming to take his job, apparently. And it's not like this is a baby who, you know, they, they can see the potential where one day he might grow and Herod could keep an eye on it. They're saying, no, this baby that was just born is king of the Jews right now. Herod's kingdom has come under threat because it means that if Jesus is king of the Jews, that means that Herod is not king of the Jews because there can only be one king. So Herod's kingdom has come under threat. And in my kingdom, the story is somewhat similar. In my life, my kingdom that I rule and that where I do whatever I want, there can only be one king there as well. And if Jesus is king, that means that I'm not. And that is the struggle and the choice that everybody has to make. That Jesus is Lord and makes claims to be Lord and makes claims to be kings. And he asks for our life. And we need to decide whether we will hand that over to him or not. 
Jesus in himself is not threatening. When we think of Jesus, we look at that little baby who was born, and we go, oh, it's so cute. Babies aren't threatening. Babies aren't threatening, and Jesus himself is not threatening. We say Jesus is good. Jesus is loving. Jesus is gracious. Jesus forgives our sin. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is merciful. He is meek and gentle. Jesus in himself, uh, in his character, is not threatening. But when Jesus is born, verse 3 says that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. There was something about this baby that was disturbing. And not because the baby in himself was disturbing. Not that when Jesus grew to a man, he was disturbing in itself. But when Jesus comes and says, I am Lord, I am King, that is disturbing to Herod's kingdom. And that's disturbing to my kingdom, potentially. Because if Jesus is Lord, then that means I'm not. And as Jesus is born... There's a, a power shift occurring. There is a, a challenge to authority in Herod's life. And so as Jesus is born, there is a threat to the kingdom. We often use the phrase, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It shows up in Scripture a bunch of times. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when it comes to Jesus, the Savior part is, is amazing. Right? Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead to conquer over death. Jesus offers blessing of all kinds, including eternal life, to anyone who wants it. The Savior part is incredible. Who wouldn't want to be saved, right? Jesus has saved me from my sins. He has saved me from death. He has saved me from fear. He has broken the chains. I am in freedom because of him. He has saved me as my Savior. He is mighty to save. That's incredible. The first word is harder, the Lord part. The Savior part's easy to grab onto. The Lord part is a little trickier. Because if he is Lord of my life, that means I'm not. Right? My kingdom, I am, I am choosing to hand over the kingship to another king. And I am choosing to say, Lord, I will do this your way. And I will lay down my rights, and I will lay down my preferences, and I will lay down my goals and plans. I will do that for you. I will let you lead. I will let you be Lord. And that's not quite as easy to grasp as the, the Savior part. And even if we walk with Jesus for decades, uh, there are still probably for most of us areas of our life, there are regions of our kingdom where we have said, I'm going to keep control of this one over here. I'm not ready to give that one up yet. Right? Because there might be a sin there that is really appealing. Or there might be just a, an area where it's easier to go our own way. Or there might be a, an agenda that we have that we're not willing to lay down yet. So the Lord part is trickier. And yet, if, if Jesus is Lord, then our goal is that he is actually Lord of our lives. That we are willing to say, Lord, you take the lead. I had someone, uh, I was talking to someone recently, there was an old bumper sticker that used to say, Jesus is my co-pilot. And they said to me, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat. They said, if, if Jesus is Lord, he needs to be Lord. And, and the thing about Jesus is, is that if we trust him as our Savior, and, and I do, and I know many of you do as well, we trust him as our Savior because we believe that he's good, and we believe that he loves us, and we believe that he's powerful, and we believe he is mighty to save. We believe all of those things. And the reason he is able to save us is because he is Lord. Because he's Lord, he has power. Because he's Lord, he has authority. Because he's Lord, he's able to do these things. And he does them. The Bible is crystal clear for no other reason than because he loves us so much, and he is so good. 
because he is good and because he is lo- he loves us and because he has the power and because he has the authority as Lord, because of those things, he can save us. And so we trust him as our Savior. And if we can trust him as our Savior, we can also trust him as our Lord. Because to say, Jesus, I'm going to do it your way, uh, it it can be challenging. And again, I think we all probably have areas of our lives where we're not quite there yet in that area. But to say Jesus is Lord is to say, I trust that you're good. I trust that you're wiser. I trust that your way is better. And as I give my life to Jesus more and more, and I let him take lordship of more and more areas, it's not always easy, but life definitely goes better because his way is better. And his way is trustworthy. And so when we say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to follow your word, uh, I can trust that because he loves us so much, and he's demonstrated that love for us. In verse 4 of our text, Herod, who is under threat, his kingdom is under threat, uh, calls together the religious people. He calls together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asks them, where is the Messiah to be born? This had been prophesied centuries before. And so they say, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, most of them hundreds if not thousands of years before he was born. Uh, Jesus fulfills all of them. And you saw even in the passage we read today, it's very important to Matthew when he's writing his gospel to make clear how Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies that these are things that have been promised. These are things that we are waiting for. These are very specific things, including where is the Messiah going to be born. Uh, There are very specific things that Matthew wants to make sure we know Jesus is fulfilling. And just the, the sheer odds of all of this you know, that Jesus would come and this idea that there is a a Messiah coming out of the Jewish people. And yet, even though he is a Jewish Messiah, uh, he is going to win the allegiance of people from all over the world. All tribes, all tongues, all nations will worship this Jewish Messiah. If you just consider, what are the sheer odds of that happening? I mean, Israel's in the news a lot, and so it's a, a major part of our lives. But Israel is a tiny nation. The Jewish people are not a huge population. Think about another tiny nation. Think of Lithuania or Costa Rica or just another tiny place. Like, what are the odds that a Costa Rican is going to win the allegiance of the entire planet thousands of years after the person has died? Right? And that Jesus has done this. It could be a grand coincidence. It could be uh, that this Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago, it could be a coincidence that all over the world, in every nation, in every language, people worship him as Lord. It could be a coincidence, but for me, just logically, it's way more likely that something divine has been going on in Jesus Christ. That's just way more likely logically to me that a Jewish peasant carpenter rabbi who wandered the countryside teaching things would be elevated to who he is thousands of years later uh, and still is expanding. The gospel is still spreading. His name is still spreading. These prophecies are fulfilled. And the rulers, these experts in the Bible, they missed him entirely. They were the ones waiting for him and teaching about him. They were the ones who knew he was supposed to come out of Bethlehem. They knew all this stuff, and they missed it entirely. And they would become some of his biggest critics and enemies as he would grow up and begin his ministry. And so they, too, felt the threat of this peasant carpenter 
right? Because he was popular. He was more popular than them. People said he teaches with way more authority than these experts in the Bible. And so when Jesus comes, there is this threat because when Jesus comes, there is change coming. And that's just the way that that goes. John 1, 9 says about Christmas, about what we're talking about, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And light is not always welcome. Have you ever been in a pitch black room and someone flicks on a light switch all of a sudden? Light is not welcome in that moment, right? Light is uh, painful, uncomfortable, no. And then your eyes adjust and everything is good. But when light comes, it's not always good right away. And Jesus would say one of the reasons that people turned against him so much is because he was bringing light. And sometimes we like the darkness better. The darkness is more comfortable, and sin is more comfortable, and doing things our own way is more comfortable. But light was coming to push the darkness back. And it's a threat to Herod's kingdom, and it's a threat to Satan's kingdom. And we see in this story, Herod and Satan respond viciously when the light is coming in to push back the darkness. C.S. Lewis said this about Christmas. He said, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. That in a world of darkness and in a world of sin and in a world of hurt and in a world of brokenness, the true king has finally showed up. Light has finally showed up. It has showed up to push the darkness back. It has showed up to break the chains, to bring the healing, to bring the freedom, to bring the forgiveness, to triumph over sin, to triumph over death. The rightful king has arrived at Christmas time. Jesus is here, and his kingdom is coming to push the other kingdom back. And because Jesus is Savior and Lord, we can trust that the rightful king has arrived. We have, can trust that his goodness is something that we can trust and we can follow. So the Magi have grabbed a hold of this. Herod feels threatened. The, the Jewish leaders just miss it. Uh, but the Magi see the truth of this. And in verse 11, they go and they find Jesus. Scripture says they bring gold, and they bring frankincense, and they bring myrrh, and there's prophetic significance to all of those gifts. Gold was the tribute you would bring to kings. Frankincense was something that you lit, that you offered up as worship to God, and myrrh was something that you used to bury the dead. And so in these gifts they are bringing, whether they knew they were doing this or whether God was just working this all out, they were coming with gifts that acknowledge that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus is going to have a special death of some kind. They are prophetically proclaiming that, even just with the choice of gifts that they bring. So they saw something there, and they did not need convincing. You know, from the moment they saw the star, they said something profound is going on, and they come to worship and honor Jesus from there. Herod responds again with just bloodthirsty viciousness from a bloodthirsty man, verse 16 and 17, uh, and he makes a terrible proclamation and he just, he goes quite mad in that moment. And, you know, anything involving children, obviously, is just so horrific. And, uh, and it is often Satan's strategy. And we see it in an extreme version here. But Satan's strategy, we see it in Scripture, we see it in our own lives, is often when God is up to something, Satan does his best to wipe it out before it starts. And, and as good things are happening, we were praying. We had a baptism a few weeks ago. Uh, and as we were praying for our baptism candidates following the baptism, it was just, Lord, just keep them safe. Because sometimes when you have a great, amazing spiritual moment, 
uh, Satan is there to tear it down, and discouragement comes, and, and people say things or, or whatever. It can happen lots of different ways, but this just seems to be one of his key strategies, that when good things are happening, when God is doing great things, Satan does his best to take it out, and we just need to be aware of that, because Scripture says we're not unaware of his schemes. We're on to him. By the revelation of God's word and his spirit, we are aware of what he's up to. And so it's pretty common. Youth come back from a youth retreat. They've had this incredible weekend, and then something terrible happens that week to take all the joy and take all the hope and rob them of whatever good seed God had planted. Uh, we're aware of what he's up to, and we see it, again, in extreme measure in this story. And there is a plan in place for the Messiah to be saved and protected, divine intervention and dreams, and, and Jesus is there because whether Herod acknowledges him as king or not uh, actually has no bearing on whether he is king or not. He's just king. And sometimes we use the language with Jesus of, you know, have you made him Lord of your life? And, and the language is fine. It's not a big deal. But just to be clear, we don't make Jesus Lord of anything. He's Lord. He's just Lord. We choose to submit to him as Lord or not, uh, but Jesus is Lord. He is Savior and Lord, and we trust him as Savior and Lord uh, because we trust that he's good, and we trust that he's wise, and we trust that he's powerful, and I trust when it comes to handing over the reins of my kingdom to him that he will do a better job with my kingdom than I can do by myself. And as I do that, I don't lose my personality. I don't lose my preferences. I don't lose the way I like to do things. I don't lose any of that. I just partner with a more powerful force than myself, with someone who is wiser and who knows me better and who knows what's best and what's more has the power to walk it out better than I do. It's win-win, honestly. It's not always easy, but it is win-win because I trust him and his goodness as Lord. As Jesus is born, the true light that brings light to everyone was coming into the world. And that light was challenging kingdoms. It's challenging Satan's kingdom of darkness. It's challenging Herod's kingdom and his rulership. And Jesus does bring us to the question of our kingdom and what are we doing with our kingdom. Because he says, I am God and I am Lord and I am king. And he says, anyone who wants that salvation can come with me, but I will be your Lord and God and king. And we will do this together. And we will walk this out together. And that is the offer that he makes to all of us. Herod rejects it, feeling too much under threat for not wanting to give up his kingship. Uh, the scholars and the experts missed it because they weren't really looking for him. They were so committed to the written word on the page that they missed the living word who was right in front of them. And then there are magi in the story, and they, they got it. And I don't know what they understood or if they had all the answers, but they just said there is something about this baby that is crucially important. There is something about Jesus that we need to get on board with. And so they come and they honor him as king and they honor him as God and they honor him as Lord. We have an email address here uh, at Meadowbrook. We have some uh, questions that come in from time to time and, and things come up. And so if you are thinking anything later, or you have any questions or comments or follow-up, we would love to chat with you. Questions at meadowbrook.ca. Just before we get ready to close, there is a story of a Christian counselor in Manhattan. And he had an office that was kind of right in Midtown, and he would be meeting with people and counseling and doing all that stuff. And often uh, something that would come up in the Christian counseling setting was just this idea of, uh, of who is really Lord of your life. Are you trying to do it all yourself or are you actually letting Jesus be Lord? 
And so he had this illustration he would do. He was not far from this building, which is 30 Rock. That's where NBC is uh, in New York City. And he would say, let's go down to 30 Rock. And they would go in front. And there's the statue of Atlas in front, this kind of stylistic uh, statue of Atlas, who's a, a member of Greek mythology. And Atlas carried the world on his shoulders in Greek mythology, literally the whole entire planet. And he's usually super jacked, and he's always struggling under the weight uh, of this huge planet that he's carrying on his shoulders. And directly across the street from 30 Rock is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And he would say, let's go there next. And in the back near one of the altars is a little tiny statue of Jesus as a boy. And Jesus is holding the world just in the palm of his hands. That's that little orb there that you see him holding. And the challenge, the question that the counselor would bring to his people is, you know, what, what do you want to do here? Do you want to carry it all yourself? Do you want the way to the world? Do you want to be your own savior? Do you want to be your own Lord? Or can you trust the one who holds the world right there in the palm of his hands without effort as a child can handle it all? Because he's Lord. Like, are you willing to trust him in that? Are you willing to give that to him? Or do you want to be like Atlas and carry the weight of it all, all by yourself? And everyone has to make that call for themselves. No one else can make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. You really have to figure that out on your own. When Jesus shows up, kingdoms come into conflict. The kingdom of light comes into conflict with the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of Jesus is in conflict with the kingdom of Herod, and we have a choice like Herod. Who are we going to let rule our kingdom? And many of you here I know have made that choice, that we are going to let Jesus rule as Lord. And as we do that, uh, we trust we can do that because he is powerful and because he's good and because he loves us. And just as we close, we're going to worship uh, just as the Magi did when they came and honored Jesus for who he is. So I'll ask you to stand with me, please, as we worship and close. You know, often when I think about Jesus and his birth, and I think about him as a baby, and we think about the message of hope that Jesus brought us has lasted for thousands and thousands of years. And it's incredible all the opposition that's come against Christianity and Jesus the King. What's awesome and exciting is this. The Holy Spirit has empowered us all. And the Holy Spirit is still alive today. And as we think about the power that comes in the birth of a baby named Jesus and the life-giving spirit that comes in that, it's incredible to me. As you think about Christmas this season, as you enter the season, I understand this also. It's not an easy time. It's a challenging time. Suicide rates go through the roof during this time of year. People are lonely. People are sad. And often in my life, as I think about my faith, I've been sad at Christmas at times too because Jesus in my life often has never been fully king or Lord of my life. And I often would walk in my own spirit. And as I've learned to grow in my faith, I understand I need to accept the fact that Jesus says who he is. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he can be the same for you in your life. And not just certain areas, but all parts of your life. And what's amazing, when we submit and we surrender to the power of, Jesus, of who Jesus is, life changes in a very dramatic way. Uh, we still have hope, we have peace, we have joy. But when we have struggle, that hope and his joy shows up even more mightily. And as you leave this morning, and we talk about the enemy of our soul, Satan, who wants us to be distracted from God, know this, have faith in Christ, so big, so deep through the power of the Holy Spirit, when the enemy looks at you, and the enemy looks at this Christmas season, that he would shudder because of the faith you have in Christ and the kingdom 
opportunities we can have and take back the gospel as well. Let's pray together. Father, how exciting it is to think about who you are, Jesus. And I know in my life there have been times where you've just been a little baby boy. You haven't been the Lord of my life. And I thank you, Jesus, over the years you've shown me you are the King and King of the Lord of Lords. And I pray, Jesus, for, for folks who come today who are struggling through what it really means to surrender to you, uh, to give all pieces of our lives to you. I pray, God, you remind them of the power of your Holy Spirit and encourage them and walk with them. And folks that have come this morning or know of others that are going through tough times, God, it's not easy, but I pray for power and strength and encouragement. And thank you that we can celebrate who you are. And Lord, help us not to have fear like Herod did. Help us have joy and peace that comes in the strength of who you are. And we're grateful for who you are, Jesus. And that you love us and you're with us and you are on the throne. And that you're coming back one day and we're excited about that, Lord. And I pray that you remind us of the depth of your love as we walk through these doors, whatever trials and hardships we're facing, that Jesus, we would know you are with us, heart and soul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before you leave, a quick reminder, December 24th, that's a 6 p.m. Christmas Eve service here. December 25th, which is a Sunday, 10 a.m. Christmas Day service. We'd love it if you could come, bring some family and friends. And if you come this morning, you want to pray or talk with anybody, a few of us will be available this morning. Merry Christmas. Have a great day.